All right, friends, we are coming down to sort of the home stretch in the letter to the Colossians, this letter that we've been working our way through, and now we've just got a few sections in this letter to go. And what we've said so far is if there's sort of an overarching message and theme to the letter to the Colossians, it's that the Apostle Paul is trying to get this church to understand the supremacy of Jesus Christ, the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus, that Jesus is all and Jesus is enough, and that if you as a Christian have Jesus, you have everything you need because Jesus is totally supreme and totally sufficient. Until this point, it's almost like the letter has worked like Google Earth. So if you've ever been on Google Earth, there's the view that's 30,000 feet high or, or thousands of feet above, and you can see sort of the whole earth. You can hover over entire nations. And then there's the view that comes down, all the way down, till it's at the ground level, at the street level, where you can see houses and cars and homes. And that's sort of how the letter to the Colossians has sort of worked. At 30,000 feet, high above all things, Paul has laid out the supremacy of Jesus over everything. That he is the firstborn over all creation. That by him and for him and through him were all things made. All things hold together by Jesus Christ. He is preeminent. He is prominent. He is supreme. He is sufficient. And so at 30,000 feet, we've heard of the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And now in this section, what Paul does is he comes down all the way down to the ground level, to the street view, and he says, now how does the supremacy of Jesus look like in your home? That's what we considered last week. How does Jesus Christ being Lord of all, how does that flesh itself out between a husband and a wife, between a father and his child? How does it work in the place where you are most naturally you? In the place where you are free to be who you really are, in the places where you spend most of your time, in the context of your nearest relationships, what does the supremacy of Jesus look like on the ground, on the street level, in your home, and this week, in your work? What does it mean that Jesus is Lord from Monday, 9 to 5, through Friday? Right? It, what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord here from 10 to 12? But what does it mean for Jesus to be supreme and Lord Monday through Friday from 9 to 5, from 7 to 11, where, wherever it might be? Right? What does practically the supremacy and the lordship of Jesus Christ have to do with how you relate as a teacher to your students? Or with how you relate as a, a nurse with your patients? Or as how you relate to your clients as a salesman or as a manager to your employees or your employees to a manager. What does the supremacy of Jesus Christ look like, not just at 30,000 feet, but at the street view and the ground in your home and now this week in your work? And I want us now then to pick up where we left off last week. Kevin wonderfully preached for us last week of what the supremacy of Jesus looks like in your home. And this week, we're picking up in Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 and following. So if you've got a Bible, you want to leave it open to there. Colossians 3, verses 22. And I think what this section is going to show you is that we show off the supremacy of Jesus in how we work. By those being under authority and in authority. By being people who are in authority and under authority, we show off the supremacy of Jesus Christ by how we work. Now, if you're looking at the passage, I would love for us to be able to just jump into this passage and grab some principles that we could apply to our lives. 
And yet if you look at the very first sentence and what this passage is saying, you're going to immediately realize we have some work to do first. In fact, we have quite a bit of work to do. And that's because you'll notice that the passage doesn't say, employees, here is how you are to relate to your employers. In fact, what the passage says is, slaves, obey in everything your earthly masters. This isn't employees and employers. This is slaves, obey in everything your master. Now, that raises some questions. Right? That, that presents some difficulties and some problems. If you're honest, you can almost feel the tension of, what am I going to do with this verse? How does my unbelieving friend read this verse? You can almost feel sort of the embarrassment of, why is this verse in our book? And what are we going to do to deal with this verse? Right? You, you can almost feel the problems that this verse causes. For example, just a few years ago, a group called the American Atheists put up a billboard in Harrisburg. And the billboard was a picture of an African-American with a metal collar around his neck, and it just had one line, Colossians 3, verses 22, slaves, obey your masters. Now, you can imagine the controversy that that stirred up. Uh, needless to say, it, it caused an uproar, and eventually the billboard was taken down, but not before it surfaced all kinds of questions. Questions like, what does the Bible say about this? Does the Bible condone slavery? Is it at best trying to manage slavery? Right? How, how do you understand a verse like this one? Right? Because the sad reality that we can't deny is that passages like this one, in fact, verses like the one we're looking at today, were used by ministers and slave owners in the South in our own country to uphold the practice of slavery. And so what, what do you do? And the natural question that our city would ask us and our friends would ask us and our neighbors and co-workers would ask us, that skeptics and atheists would ask us is, what does the Bible say here? And the deeper question underneath that is, if the Bible can be wrong about something as obvious and reprehensible as slavery, then who knows what else it's wrong about. And if you can't trust it on this, to be on the right side of history with this, then how do you trust it to be on the right side about anything? So can you see with me, perhaps, why we have some work to do before we just apply how this passage relates to your life at Hup or Jefferson or Comcast or wherever God may have you serve? And so here's what we want to do. And I want to spend the large portion of our time considering this, is how do we make sense of this? And, and what we need to do here is what any good student of the Bible will need to do with any passage they're studying. This happens to be a complicated one, but I want you to hear this is a good thing for you to keep in mind no matter what passage you're studying. Because any good student of the Bible is going to have to ask two questions when you do them back there where this was originally written. The first question you want to ask is, what did this passage mean to the original audience, to the original context, to the first hearers? What was going on then that caused Paul to write this or God to inspire it? And once you fully have grasped that, then you want to ask the question of, and then how does it relate to today? How do we apply this passage today to our context, to our hearers, and what that means for our lives? And I want you to hear, Samarod, if you skip either one of these, you run the risk of missing what God has for you. 
If you throw the Bible out as some old, antiquated, irrelevant book from way back then, then you miss all that God wants to communicate today to your life because his word is unchanging and enduring forever. But if you ignore the original world in which this was written and the context in which it was written to and the people and what was going on then, then you run the risk of misapplying what God is trying to say today because you're so quick to try and figure out what it means for your life. And I'd say if there's a risk that some of us would have, it's that second one. It's that in almost well-meaning, we're so eager to say what the Bible has to say to my life and its circumstances that we ignore the first world and are ready to just jump it into our world. But we run through all kinds of problems. For example, when I was a younger Christian, just in my 20s in college, I, I loved the Lord, but no one had ever taught me how to read the Bible. So I had this big, complicated book. I love Jesus, and people told me, this is where you go for direction to life. So I was reading it, but I had no idea how to read it. And so the big question for my time at that time was whether or not I could marry Shinu. That was the question that was in my brain. Right? What does God say about me dating Shinu? So every page of the Bible I read with that one question. Does this mean that I can date her or not? Does this mean I can marry her or not? So that's how I read every section. I, I kid you not, I read the story of Noah. And I read the story of Noah, and in it, there's just this throwaway line that God closes the ark and that no one else can open it but God. Somehow, I interpreted that, that there's a number of things that I think God has closed the door on our relationship, and so until he opens it, I can't. So I literally called this girl up, and I said, I don't think we can date because of Noah, right? <laughs> you can imagine how confusing that conversation was, right? And what I needed was some brother to sit me down and say, brother, you're not Noah, right? Unless you and Shinu are planning to open a zoo or something, I don't think this passage relates to you the way that you think it does, right? I don't think this passage has to do with what you think it does. And so, brother, what you need to do is you have to hear what this meant to the first world that was hearing it and then figure out how that connects to and applies to your life today. Right? So you can't skip for one for the other. In the same way, that's what you have to do with every passage. That's what we have to do with this one as well. Which is, what did this mean to the first hearers? And what was going on in the first century when Paul wrote these words? So that's what we want to ask first. What was the world like when Paul wrote, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Now, what the world was, was that the reality was slavery was just a fact of life. In fact, most commentators tell you, depending on who you read, anywhere from a third to at least a fifth of the population were slaves. And yet, nevertheless, we need to note that there were some significant differences by what we hear and understand slavery to be and what it was in the first century world. What I mean by that is, when you hear slavery, you have probably one of only two contexts to understand it. You're either thinking of African-Americans who were in this country, and the mindset then is the slavery that blighted our nation, and the Africans who were kidnapped from their country, bought on ships over to this place for generations put under the languish and tyranny of slavery, generation after generation in lifelong racially-based slavery. And if it's not that, the only other context we really know is the horror of human trafficking in our own day. 27 million, if not more, slaves in our own day who are tricked and duped and, and, and seduced into slavery and then imprisoned and bondaged in slavery. Now, as horrific as those things are, we would do well to note here that that isn't the context of what's going on in the first century world. 
It's not that it was an ideal situation by any means, but at least that we should know it's not one-to-one. For example, you'll notice in the ESV, in the translation we're reading, in the newer versions, and you saw it on the screen, they've changed that first word, slaves, to bondservants. Bondservants, obey in everything your earthly master. Now why? That's not the translator's way of trying to dodge a bullet or escape a controversy or soften the blow of what's being said here. It's to sort of highlight the nuance that slave doesn't mean exactly what you might think slave means. And that it's not one-to-one. There's sort of apples and oranges going on here. So, for example, some of the distinctions. In the first century world, slavery wasn't racially based. In the world that Paul's writing to, it wasn't race-based slavery. So, for example, if you went to the South, you, just by walking through those streets back then, you would have known who was a slave and who wasn't by the color of your skin. Well, if you walked in Colossae, you wouldn't have known that. And you wouldn't have known that because ethnicities of every kind were in slavery. And part of the reason for that was that slavery then wasn't because you were kidnapped from one place and brought to another. That's something that the Bible straight out tells you is a wicked and evil sin. Instead, what you had there was often a sort of voluntary thing even. Sometimes the way you became a slave was that you voluntarily made yourself a bondservant. It's sort of the comparable word for us would almost be indentured servitude. The idea that you could tie yourself because you couldn't pay off a debt, because you didn't know how to feed your family, you might voluntarily put yourself into servitude. And in fact, you'll notice that there's sort of a domestic servant idea here in just where this verse shows up. If you'll notice, Paul is speaking to the Christian family, and he doesn't take a breath when he gets to verse 22. So for him, in one sentence, he can talk about husbands and wives and fathers and children and slaves and masters without taking a breath. Almost as if this thing was just an extension of what the home was, of what the family was. And so there's nuances, there's differences there. Part of that was also that a slave expected at some point in his life to be freed. That after I worked off my debt, I expected. So if you were a slave in Colossae, most of the commentators say they would have expected at some point in their life to be freed. That a slave could pursue education, could own property, could advance himself. For example, in Acts 23 to 25, we meet this governor named Felix who himself was once a slave. And so there's the potential for advancement in society. All that we're trying to communicate is that there's some distinctions that we would do well to pay attention to. Now, having said that and saying that the distinctions are there and they matter, I think we'd still all agree that ultimately it's still not okay for one person to own another. The distinctions being what they are, it's still not okay for one person to own another. And so we're still left with our questions, still left asking Why doesn't the New Testament have one verse that calls for the abolition of slavery? Why isn't there one verse in the New Testament that would just say, here's what I say about slavery, stop it, end it, right? Why doesn't Colossians 3 verses 22 say what you and I so badly wanted to say, which is if you're going to address slaves, tell them to be free or revolt, And if you're going to address masters, tell them to set their slaves free immediately, to bring this institution to an end overnight. That's the sentence we want, and we don't get it. So what do we do with that? 
I heard a sermon by a pastor named Sandy Wilson that was wonderfully helpful and helped shape some of my thinking this week as I was studying through this. And one of the things that I think Wilson is right to point out is that as much as we would want the New Testament to launch sort of an overnight, immediate revolution that would bring slavery to an end in one night, uh, the truth is it probably was much more complex than that. And that's not an excuse, that's just the reality of what it is. For example, what would it mean if you told masters to, slay, to set free a third of the population overnight? And where would they go the next morning? And what would they do? And how would that work? If a third of the population was now on the street, what, what would that be like? Or even if you were going to address the slaves, and you're just going to call them to revolt, I think that's forgetting who Paul was and who he was writing to in that world then. He was writing to powerless minorities who were marginalized within the Roman Empire. I mean, you couldn't get lower than being a Christian, except even being a Christian slave. I mean, you, you were a marginalized minority writing to marginalized minorities. I, I think the reason for us is sometimes because we've gotten used to the fact that here in the West, Christianity has afforded us some power and some standing. And if you're honest, you and I can almost feel the nervousness of some of that power beginning to go away. We, we can feel the nervousness, the collective nervousness of seeing that the culture is shifting and we're being left behind and nobody needs our voice or our vote as much anymore. And so we feel sort of the nervousness of being marginalized and becoming a minority. Well, that's the world that Paul was writing to. It'd be like if, if Paul was writing to Christians in Syria today or Christians in Iraq today, do you think he'd be saying what you Christians need to do is revolt? Overthrow your leaders. Don't listen to the authorities anymore. No, I think the reality is Paul had the difficult question of asking, how am I supposed to speak to these marginalized, powerless people who find themselves in an institution in a situation that is anything but ideal? How am I supposed to speak to them of what it looks like to live out their Christian faith when everything around them is a power against them? And so we don't find the sentence we want. Now, having said that, I need you to hear, though we don't get the sentence we want, it's not that Paul doesn't have a very intentional strategy here. It's not that Paul doesn't have a very intentional strategy. That the teaching of Paul and the teaching of the New Testament may not have overthrown slavery overnight, but you need to hear it was those very teachings that got into it and undermined it and eventually eradicated it. That dismantled this thing from the inside out. It's like one preacher says, often this is the way the gospel works. The way that Christianity has worked in the world. It's not by overnight revolution, but by almost long-term subversion. Right? Jesus himself said, let me tell you what the kingdom of God is like. It's not this violent coup. Instead, he describes the kingdom of God like yeast that works itself out through a batch of dough. He says, do you, do you know what the kingdom of God is like? It's like yeast, and it'll permeate and infiltrate and penetrate every part until it's worked its way in all the way out. That's what the kingdom of God is like. And I need you to hear then that the message of the Bible is the message that men like William Wilberforce used in the fight against slavery. And what you should pay attention to then is, it's not that the Bible was an obstacle to abolition, 
The Bible was fuel for abolition. The Bible wasn't a hurdle you had to overcome in your effort to end slavery. It was the fuel that kept men like William Wilberforce going. It was the teachings of people like Paul. What kind of teachings? Like the one you see in just a few verses before the section we're looking at. In 3 verse 11, Paul said this. He said, here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. I mean, it's a revolutionary thing to say into the first century world. Now in this thing, in Christ, there is no place for racism or classism. And what that's going to do, it's going to be like yeast that works its way out. Or just notice that in verses 22, he actually addresses slaves. Meaning he didn't deal with them like they were owned or property or less than. But he spoke to them as if they were moral, responsible agents. Moral people who, in verse 24, will be rewarded if they do what's right. And in verse 24, will, 25, will be punished if they do what's wrong. So women and children and slaves were not being talked about, but talked to in this passage. Not here are these three categories of people that exist in society, we'll, we'll deal with them, but rather talk to, as in here is time in the text to speak to you. Christ wants to speak to you, woman. Christ wants to speak to you, child. Christ wants to speak to you, slave. And so what Paul begins to do is he's got these teachings that are going to work like yeast in the dough. And you'll see this even more in Colossians 4. So, for example, if you could skip ahead one chapter, and when Paul is getting ready to wrap up his letter, here's what he says in chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. He says, Tychicus, that's one of his partners in ministry, will tell you all about my activities. Now, Paul is in prison when he's writing. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your heart. So what he's saying is, I'm in prison, but... Though my hands are chained, my heart is free, and the Lord is doing a great work, and you have to see what Christ is doing in the jail cell. And so I'm sending Tychicus so that he can tell you and you can be encouraged. And with him, verse 9, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Now, Onesimus, who's that? Well, this verse tells us that Onesimus is a faithful and beloved brother who is a part of the Colossians, who is sent by Paul with Tychicus to give him news of what's going on. And we get a more fuller explanation of who Onesimus is and is in a different letter of the New Testament. So if you kept going, you would find tucked towards the back is a tiny little letter, one chapter long, called the letter to Philemon. And the letter to Philemon is different in that Paul is usually writing to churches. So Corinth is a church, and Ephesus is a church, and Rome is a church, and Colossae is a church. But Philemon is a personal letter to one guy. So he writes this letter to Philemon. And who is Philemon? Well, when you read Philemon in the first seven verses, what you come to find out is Philemon is a member of the church at Colossae. In fact, he's not just a member. The house that he has is where the church at Colossae meets. So the church meets in Philemon's home. And so Philemon is a CEO, wealthy, influential, good brother in Christ who loves the Lord, who is doing well in life, who has literally had the whole church meet in his home. 
And that's who Paul is writing to. And if you read finally, in the first seven verses, Paul greets him. And he greets him some of the same ways that he wrote to Colossae. I want to greet you. I thank God for you. I remember you in my prayer. I thank God for your faith in God and your love for all the saints. And he goes on to say, you have refreshed me, brother, and you've comforted me. You've brought so much joy to my heart. And then in verse 8, he gets down to the business at hand, why he's writing this letter to Philemon. And here's what I want you to hear. He says this, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, let me get you caught up on what's happening. We come to find out who Onesimus is, is he is Philemon's slave. In fact, he's Philemon's runaway slave. Onesimus has run away from Philemon and through some way has come across Paul while he was in prison. Perhaps Onesimus was apprehended himself. Whatever it might have been, Onesimus meets Paul and becomes a Christian. While Paul's in jail... Onesimus converts, and now Onesimus becomes his son in the ministry. Now, Philemon, his owner, has rights over Onesimus. In fact, the law then was that he could put to death Onesimus, this runaway slave. And yet, here's what Paul's doing. Paul's going to send Onesimus back. He's going to send him back to Philemon, his master, and he's going to say, listen, I could command you what to do here as an apostle, but I don't want to do that. Instead, here's what I want you to see. Look at verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. There's sort of a play going on. Onesimus means useful. And so he's saying, formerly he was useless to you, but now he's become Onesimus. He's become useful to you and to me. Verse 12, I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted for you for a while, that you might have him back forever. And then how? No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother especially to me, but how much more to you, Philemon, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So here's what Paul's saying. Philemon, you have a right to take this guy back and put him to death, but I'm sending him back. And now listen, I'm an apostle, by the way. I could command you what to do, but I don't want to force you. I don't want it to be out of compulsion. I know that you're going to do the right thing here, and so I'm going to send him back to you. And Philemon, I want you to consider Perhaps it wasn't by chance that, that Onesimus ran away. M maybe it was the hand of providence that out of all the places this runaway slave could have went, he happened to come to me, meet me, become a Christian, become my son in the ministry. And, and Philemon, I would love to keep him. He is Onesimus to me. He's useful to me. Your, all your resources, you could have come and served, but it would be great if I could have had him. But I'm going to send him back. And I'm going to send him back so that what? You can receive him not as a bondservant, not as a slave, but as something more than a slave, a brother. That's what I expect, Philemon, that you're going to receive this man back as a brother. And listen to what he says in verse 17. So 
if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. Paul, the apostle, is basically putting his relationship with Philemon on the line. And he's saying, Philemon, if you would receive me, now imagine, how would you receive an apostle? I mean, the guy who authored most of the New Testament. Just a few weeks ago, we saw how our city got ready to receive a pope. How would you receive an apostle? And Paul is saying, that's the way I want you to receive this slave. The way you would receive me is the way I want you now to receive Onesimus. Friends, do you see what Paul is doing? What Paul is doing is he is establishing now a new dominant relationship that is going to replace the old category. Philemon, you once related to Onesimus as master and slave, but now I want you to receive him back in a new category because of the gospel. That is, he is your beloved brother. And if he means something to me, how much more does he mean to you, Philemon? You see, what Paul is doing is he's, it's the yeast that's working its way out through the whole batch. He's saying, now it's not master-slave, it's brother and brother. And you, Philemon, are going to have to work out what that's going to mean. You see, if, if I had a family business, one preacher gave this illustration. If I had a family business and my son and I went into business together, I wouldn't introduce Micah to you as, here's my employee. I would say, here's my son, Right? Why? Because that relationship is the dominant relationship. That relationship trumps the other. And now Paul is saying, Philemon, you're a child of God. And now through God's grace, Onesimus is a child of God. And that means now you are brothers. And oh, by the way, Philemon, if you think you can still own your brother, well, good luck with that. Right? What, he, what he's doing is there's no overnight revolution. He is undermining the very core of this thing and dismantling it from the inside out. And you'll read on. I won't show you for the sake of time. In verse 21, he goes on to say, Philemon, I'm very confident that you'll obey. And he says more than that, not only that you'll obey, I'm confident you will do more than I ask. I'm confident you're not even just going to not put him to death when you get him back. And I'm confident you're not just going to not have him as just a bondservant, but as a brother. I'm confident, Philemon, you're going to do even more than I ask. And friends, hear this. I think Philemon obeyed. Now, this is a simple thought, but it didn't dawn on me till I heard it this week. I, I think Philemon obeyed. Do you know how I know? Because we have the letter. Because we have the letter. I don't think that Philemon would have told the church at Colossae, hey, I got this letter if he was planning to blow Paul off. I don't think he would have said, hey, I don't care what the apostle says, but here's the letter. I think the reason we have the letter is because he showed up to the church that was gathering in his home, and he said, brothers, the apostle sent me a letter too, and so I need us to receive Onesimus, our brother. And more than that, you want to hear else what I think happened? In 110 AD, we get a letter outside the Bible. It's written by a man named St. Ignatius. And St. Ignatius is on his way to die in Rome for Jesus Christ. And so he writes a letter. And he writes this letter and he says, listen, pray for me. I'm on my way to Rome to face the lions. Pray for me. And in it he says, and I also want you to know how thrilled I am about the marvelous bishop that you have there, Onesimus. Now, I don't know if it's the same one. 
But we do know that slaves became bishops. And I think Philemon heard what Paul had to say and received Onesimus back as not a bondservant, but more than that, as a brother. You see what, what's happening? The yeast is working its way through the batch until it penetrates and permeates and infiltrates every bit and every place until it undoes this thing from the inside out. That's what Paul's doing. You don't get an overnight revolution. You get entirely new categories in which how these people are going to relate until it undermines the whole practice of slavery. Here's why we've spent this time on this, and here's what I need you to hear. You don't have to worry, brother and sister, that you love the oppressed more than the God of the Bible does. You may have reasons why you won't believe the Bible, but loving the oppressed, the marginalized, the minorities, the poor, and the slave more than the God of the Bible won't be one of them. There is no one who loves the weakest and the least and the lost. No one who identifies with the slave and the servant more than the God of the Bible. In fact, that's the message of the whole Bible. The message of the whole Bible is not just a God who is apathetic or indifferent, but a God who so cared and so identified that what? Philippians 2 says that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he made himself nothing, taking on the form of a what? And the word there is slave. Taking on the form of a slave. You have a God who's not distant from this, but rather one who has entered into the story and identified in the deepest way so that he, who had all rights, gave up all his rights to take us who were slaves to sin and set us free. That's the story of the Bible. There is no one who has loved the least and the marginalized and the minority more than the God of the scriptures. So we've answered the question of what was it doing then with the last five or ten minutes that I have, let me just run through. What does this mean for you? How, how does this passage apply to now your work and the places where you are both in authority and under authority? I think it's obvious now that there's not a one-to-one -one translation, right? You're not a slave. No matter how much you hate your job, no matter how mean your boss is, you're not a slave. You're free. You can find another job. You don't like the ethics of your place. You can train and go get something else. And yet I think there are principles here for what it looks like to show off the supremacy of Jesus in the places we work. And, and here's why I want you to hear this. If a slave in his awful condition could be expected to work in such a way that he would show off the supremacy of Jesus, how much more should we in our better condition work in such a way that we show off the supremacy of Jesus in how we work? Right? If, a, if a slave in his horrible situation was called to work in such a way that you could show off the supremacy of Christ, how much more in our better condition ought we to work in such a way that displays the supremacy of Christ? And so I'll say three things to you quickly. Here's the first. You can show the supremacy of Jesus in your work by doing your work wholeheartedly. You can show the supremacy that Jesus is Lord from Monday to Friday, 9 to 5, by doing your work wholeheartedly. Right? Listen to the verse, 22. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. So here's what's happening. Commentators think that perhaps Christianity was getting a bad rap 
because the slaves or the servants had this theology, and rather than it causing them to work harder and better, it caused them to slack off and be lazy. Right? It's almost like they took to heart, we're free now, we're brothers, we're equal, there's no more slave, no more free, and so we can do whatever we want. And Paul's saying, you're giving Christianity a bad name. It's the oddest thing that sometimes what we believe, rather than causing us to work better and harder, causes us to be lousy and lazy. I've talked to Christian teachers who tell me they have Christian students who don't pay attention, who don't do their work, who slack off, who, who blow off their exams, who fail, and then are appalled that the teacher would fail them. They go, how can you do that? You believe in grace. You're supposed to show me grace. And the answer is, we're going to graciously fail you now because your theology wasn't supposed to somehow cause you to be worse. And Paul's saying here, listen, don't work to be eye-pleasers or people-pleasers. So how does this relate to you? The question would be, is your effort at work consistent, or do you work one way when the boss sees you and another way when she doesn't? Is your work, is your labor, is your effort consistent, or do you work one way when you're being seen and another when you're not? Because Paul's saying, don't do that. Instead, be sincere of heart. And the word sincerity there is singleness, meaning don't be divided like there's two employees, the one that works one way when the boss is looking at you and another when she's not. Instead, be a whole person. Be sincere of heart. Display the supremacy of Jesus by being wholehearted in your work. Second, Display the supremacy of Jesus by doing your work for Jesus. Ultimately, by doing your work for Jesus. Look at verse 23 and 24. He says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive your inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So here's what Paul says. You need to work in such a way that you know that you're ultimately doing what you're doing for Jesus. You're serving the Lord Christ. Work not for your earthly master, but for your heavenly master. So you show off the supremacy of Jesus by doing all that you do as if it were for Jesus. Hear me, this is the mindset you should have at work. This is for Christ. I remember when I was a teenager, a preacher came on a Friday evening to a youth thing, and he began to preach on doing everything you do as if it were for Jesus. Now, I love the Lord, and I really wanted to take that heart. So, so I mean, he, he said down to, if you use the toilet, you want to leave it in such a way that Jesus could come after you. I mean, so that thing stuck in my head. I got to do everything for Jesus. The, the place I could apply it was I was a student, and the next day was Saturday. We had a football game. I was on the JV football team, and I was the, the center. The center is the guy who snaps the football. That's what they did with all the unathletic fat kids is they put them on the line. And so that's what I was. I, I was the center who was to hike the ball. And in my mind is rattling this sermon. Everything I do, I got to do for Jesus. So I'm in JV football, and I thought, okay, I'm going to have it that that running back behind me is Jesus. And that linebacker is trying to get Jesus. And my job is to make sure no one can touch Jesus while I'm on this line. So I had that in my head. He called hike, and I kid you not, I knocked that guy as hard as I've hit any human being in my life. So much so that the coach was screaming from the sideline, that's right, Thomas, that's the way you do it. I mean, I should have died then because that was my greatest moment. It was just, it was wonderful, right? Because in my brain is rattling around everything you do, you do for Jesus. By the way, the very next play, 
The very next play, I'm still preaching this sermon in my mind, praying to Jesus how no one's going to touch Jesus. The quarterback calls hike, and I'm still praying to Jesus. Forgot to hike the ball. We get a penalty, and the coach now screams, what are you doing, Thomas? Like literally the next play. I should have died one moment before. Right? But, but as I, I was a dumb teenager, but I want you to hear, that's the mindset Paul is saying you should have on Monday morning. That's the mindset you should have on Thursday afternoon at 4 p.m. That whatever you're doing, you're doing for Jesus. And, and what a world this would be if every Christian who was a mechanic worked on a car as if Jesus was going to drive that car. And every chef cooked his meal as if Jesus was going to eat that meal. Every construction worker built his home as if Jesus was going to build and work and live in that home. And every doctor sat with a patient as if he were treating Jesus. And every businessman signed papers with a client as if Jesus' signature was going to be on that paper. What would it be like if you worked not for your earthly master, but for your heavenly master, so that you could show off the supremacy of Jesus isn't tucked to this building on a Sunday, but spills over into Monday through Friday from 9 to 5 in the way that I work. Here's the third and last thing. You can show off the supremacy of Jesus by not only having being under authority, but how you have authority. By not only how you treat those above you, but how you treat those under you. So he speaks now in 4 verse 1. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. So the word is not just for those under authority, but those who are in authority. And he says, treat those under you, remembering that you are under someone also. Namely, your master in heaven, Jesus Christ. And so the question for you would be, if you're a manager, a director, a, a president, a boss, how would those who work under you describe you? W what would they say it's like to work for you? Would it be embarrassing to you if I told them you were a Christian? Or does your life show a consistency that that makes it perfectly fine? And, and so the question here is not just how do we live under authority, but how do we wield authority? And I think what the New Testament is saying is here's what the slave should focus on. You're free in Christ, so don't despair. But here's what the master should focus on. You're a slave to Christ. So don't grow proud and don't abuse your power, right? That's the way that it works. Slave, here's what you should focus on, your freedom in Christ. But master, here's what you should focus on, your slavery to Christ. And live out of that reality so that you treat those under you knowing that you are under someone as well, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is we can show off the supremacy of Jesus Christ in how we work. That the gospel doesn't just rest 30,000 feet above in the air, but Jesus is Lord of all, down to what that means in your home and down to what it means at work. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We pray that you would grow in us a great deal of confidence that there is no portion of scripture that we need to be embarrassed about, that there's nothing about you that we need to hide, but that you are through and through beautiful and true.